Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1920-2. You're now listening to the B-side of the podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd also love to hear from you through an Anchor voicemail. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music or at least heard something new. Today's musicians were all tenors, and whether they are Irish or not, they adopted many of the same vocal techniques and material. One of the most important questions that we have to answer when judging authenticity isn't whether or not the lived experiences of someone line up with their artistic product, but whether or not we believe that they do, that we feel what they want us to feel when they make the art. It's extraordinarily difficult for musicians or artists of any stripe to portray an experience that they haven't lived, and sometimes it's painfully transparent when they attempt to and fail. But artists who can create something from nothing, who can slant reality just slightly enough to show us a different side of it, are often regarded as truly talented. Van Gogh, Mondrian, Nagel, Gonzalez Torres, Russell Mills, and many, many more artists push what we recognize as art. They show us something new, and they force us to experience things that no one had before they shared their visions with us. In music, where so much inauthenticity has been prevalent throughout the years, we often hold musicians to a higher standard than with other art forms. We background check the streets that rappers grew up on and look into the mental health of rock stars to see if they really felt so desolate. But from a utilitarian perspective, it doesn't matter how the artist got to the statement, but only whether or not the statement is made well. Very, very often, musicians come across as pandering sellouts when they try to do something more than they're capable of. And maybe that's why we feel so capable of judging authenticity in music. But we don't expect that every plotline of a book is a reflection of the author's life. We don't expect that the painter is limited to bring to life on the canvas only what they have seen with their own eyes. What a dreary life it would be if art was only left to those who could faithfully reproduce their own life without fresh imagination and without artistic license. John McCormick did grow up in Ireland, of course, and with his daydreaming rendition of The Barefoot Trail, we can actually believe that he thinks back upon growing up there as pure childhood bliss. The imagery of running through the grass and trails around wildflowers is beautifully painted and creates a fuzzy bordered version of the past that has no sharp edges or strife. This is the kind of song you can imagine an old Irishman playing to himself when no one else is around and getting misty thinking of home, and for that the song receives a four for authenticity. The song maintains a fairly status quo melody and instrumentation, however, making this headway with lyricism, and receives a three for innovation. I enjoyed this song, but I see it as a book that I wouldn't read again. It's like rich chocolate cake. It satisfies you without coming back for more, and you'll get sick of it if you do. And for that, it receives a catchiness score of three. Where McCormick shines is in mastery. His tenor cuts right through the ages, and you can hear his clarity and strength throughout the song. It's extraordinarily obvious that he is classically trained for opera with vibrato and careful expression, and he knows exactly how to portray emotion with his voice. Especially it's impressive if you consider that whispering or quiet tones wouldn't have been reproduced with these recording implements faithfully. If this song were to be covered today, it's very likely that strong singing wouldn't be the first choice when whispers and softer singing would be available, but McCormick makes it work. The artistic statement here isn't a unique one, saying that childhood is a place that we reminisce for and that we sometimes wish we could return to. Further, it doesn't offer us insight or answers for why we do this, other than presenting it as a distant wild rose that has since given up its thorns. What it does do is take us back to somewhere that we may want to be on a particularly bad day, and for creating a small refuge, it receives a four. 
All told, The Barefoot Trail by John McCormick receives a 19 out of 25. The Tumbledown Shack in Athlone also receives a 19. John McCormick was born in Athlone, and following suit from The Barefoot Trail, he tells us about his childhood and convinces us that home is a place to yearn for. In this song, he paints a vivid picture which is almost like reading a book about his home, and receives a 5 for authenticity. Innovation and catchiness both received threes since the song is a strong statement, but of well-worn themes with single-serve sweetness. Where the song does shine is in its mastery and artistic statement. Throughout the song, you'll hear a fiddle playing, calling on another layer of reinforcement for the homesick yearning that the song seeks to portray. Overall, the song reminds us that home is a place that many will always want to return to, even though it can't be there the way you remember it, since every day is a step further away from what you remember. Moving on to McCormick's lowest rated song of the year, at 16 points, Tis an Irish Girl I Love and She's Just Like You. The themes are interchangeable with most other artists of the time, except in this case the girl is Irish, so it's supposed to be more unique. The song receives threes across the board with an exception for the mastery that McCormick commands with his voice, and the fiddle which is again a highlight. If we gave away bonus points for Irish geography lessons, the song would be rated higher. Now we move on to Henry Burr's Just a Baby's Prayer at Twilight. To me, Henry Burr is a less authentic, less talented version of McCormick. While it's not the only factor as to whether or not Burr lived his music, I don't always believe that he did due to his less convincing and weaker expression, and that can be distancing from his music, though there are notable exceptions. It should be noted that the first song we're reviewing is not actually from 1920, but is one of Burr's most well-known and best songs, so we've included it for this year. In 1917, when Burr recorded Just a Baby's Prayer at Twilight, World War I was raging on and tearing many families apart. When Burr refers to, quote, those who went away and those, quote, over there in the song, he's speaking about the child's father being away at war. By virtue of the many soldiers involved in the conflict, it's very likely that many children were praying for their father's return, and so Burr would have had a lot of experience to draw from in recording the song, even though it's almost certainly fictional. For the heartfelt expression of sympathy in his voice, the song receives a four for authenticity. It's hard to say what Burr would have innovated in this song, since it's more or less a retelling of a story that many people would have come to know in some way or another, but in crystallizing the experience, he is successful and receives a three. The song is a bit more catchy, and the music helps to secure the song with childlike bells and xylophone, and they balance the serious content of the song to make it more palatable, than what would otherwise be a heartbreaking song of a child praying that her father comes back from war. The song receives a 4 for catchiness, mastery, and artistic statement, bringing its total score to 19. Burr's next song, Tired of Me, receives a 17. The song is fairly catchy with the repeating chorus, and I think it's really interesting that in the last episode we were presented with women who were driven to dangerous acts and mania by heartbreak, but in Burr's case, he was instead deeply depressed but wished her well with the man that she left him for. The song receives threes across the board with exceptions for catchiness and mastery, which in recognition of the chorus and the interesting instrumentation receives fours. Moving on to Burr's weirdest song of the year, I'd Love to Fall Asleep and Wake Up in My Mammy's Arms. The song doesn't bear much coverage, but it's important for tomorrow's episode that we identify clearly that Mammy here is not used in the racist sense that Al Jolson used while performing in blackface. That mammy stereotype, if you're not familiar, refers to an African-American nanny in charge of white children, and you hardly ever hear it anymore outside of that context. Having said that, I see no indication in this song that it's used in any other way than to refer literally to Burr's mother, but even if it's only that, the song is very strange in its artistic statement. 
When you listen to the lyrics of the song, you're presented with a ridiculously sentimental song about a grown man who is reminded of how he'd love to wake up in his mother's arms whenever he hears a lullaby sung. And that wouldn't be overly weird, but then he adds that he has dreams of it almost every night, and furthers the point by saying that he cries every night about it. That may be too much motherly affection, and it becomes distracting. This earns the song a two in artistic statement, and three in each of the other categories. There is an interlude in the song that's worth mentioning. The song is sung with the Peerless Quartet, a group that Burr sang with often, and they break into the song with a lullaby called Kentucky Babe, which was written in 1896. When this song was published in 1920, including Kentucky Babe would have been a callback. People could have imagined it as a lullaby being sung to a child, but without that background knowledge, it just seems like a strange break in the song, so I wanted to include that. Moving on to John Steele, we start with The Love Nest, which receives a score of 14. The song is simple and talks about a small, humble house with affection and reverence, but with less effective imagery than Burr or McCormick especially are able to bring to their similar songs. Strangely, John Steele's accent seems fake, and when we listen to his other songs, it becomes more obvious that he was affecting it for this song and may have been trying to do a McCormick-style voice. With that being said, the banjo, fiddle, and flute sound wonderfully bright together during the musical interlude, and remind me of later Disney soundtracks like Snow White, which wouldn't be released until 1937. Overall, the song is average and has threes in all categories, with authenticity being deducted for Steele's accent falling flat. In Girl of My Heart, I was surprised to find such a poorly arranged song being recorded. Post-crescendo, the song seems to recover to a second crescendo simply for effect. The song stutters, and the music simply echoes the melody and notes of the song without variation. The song is below average at best, with threes in authenticity and innovation, but twos in the remaining categories. In Tell Me Pretty Gypsy, John Steele attempts an M. Night Shyamalan-level twist by informing us at the very last second that the gypsy from whom he's been requesting his fortune is in fact the girl he loves. Unfortunately, at no point in this song do I believe that John Steele was in love with a gypsy, and in the end, when the twist is revealed, it seems the entire thing's been tacked on. When I read the sheet music, I wasn't able to find those lyrics, so it's entirely possible that they were added on to resolve the song more fully. It seems that this is a song meant for performance rather than recording, and would be more at home in musical theater than on record. Authenticity and artistic statement receive twos, with threes in innovation, catchiness, and mastery. Overall, John McCormick is the standout of these three tenors, with his Irish dreamscape standing out over Steele and Burr. McCormick's average score for 1920 is 18, with Burr following at 16.7, and Steele bringing up the rear with 13. Whether or not you agree with us, we want to hear about it, because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to pose the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the subreddit's dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com r slash Cunningham's Law Review, or reach out to us through an Anchor voicemail. If you leave us an Anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own bands. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcast and playlist. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode of 1920s Popular Music, focusing on Al Jolson, one of the biggest stars of the 20s and 30s. Until next time, I've been your host, Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by The Insider, and nobody else works here. 